Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we, that we have to gather together to praise and glorify and worship your holy name, to lift you up, Lord, and enthrone you on the praises of we, your people. Father, I pray this day as we do so that you would remind us of the ground of our salvation, that the roots of our new life in Christ are firmly rooted in the gospel, that they go down deep and draw from the rivers of living water that are supplied to us by the Spirit, making real to us the message of truth, that salvation from our sin that we committed against a holy God is available in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. We thank you, God, for these truths. I pray now as we open your scriptures that you would open our heart to receive them. I pray that you would bless our minds to understand and comprehend and renew our minds as we hear your word. I pray, Lord, that you would move upon us, Lord, to put into action and to apply the scriptures as we have them delivered to us this day. I pray in all of this that we would move, Lord, in a heart of worship and glory of your great name beyond this place to walk in a manner worthy of our call. If our prayers are answers in this regard, we confess it is you and you alone who take these means and do so. So no glory goes to the proclaimer of your word and no glory to the hearer, no glory to the obeyer, but only Christ in us, the Spirit in us, working to will and to do of your good pleasure. And so we give you praise this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. This morning, I would invite you to turn in your scriptures to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3 will be our text today, verses 1 through 7. Some of you may be asking as you turn there, that's not in the book of Matthew. There's a reason for that. Matthew is our series that we're going through on our regular Sundays. Uh, Next week will be our communion Sunday and we'll be in our Hebrew series for that. Well, the reason I'm preaching to you from Titus 3 this morning is quite simple. I forgot my notes last week at the Big Lake service, so just uh, several minutes before I was to go up to preach, I was going through my Bible, I was going to put them carefully in Titus 3, so be ready to take the pulpit. So I get up there, or I, I'm looking and I'm looking, and suddenly I get that sinking feeling that I've left them somewhere else. Sure enough, they were here uh, in, on the pulpit waiting for me today. So <laughs> I preached uh, Matthew 27 twice last week. And I thought, well, by the grace of God, perhaps he's prepared this message for us this morning. I took uh, my study time um, off on Saturday, and I have a message pre-prepared for you from Titus 3. This morning's message is entitled, Act Like Heirs. Act Like Heirs. What is an heir? An heir is a recipient of the inheritance, the great wealth and estate from the one who has gone before, like a parent who has died and then passes along the estate. Not just the material wealth and possessions, but also the duty and responsibility to steward it well, to continue that legacy, to continue on the name, the family lineage. That's what an heir is. You're familiar with that term. We are heirs, brothers and sisters in Christ, of that which Christ died to transfer to all who are in Him. As adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, we are heirs of the gospel and all it entails. So our text today calls us simply to act like heirs. 
Stand with me if, you're, if you would and if you're able with your Bible open to Titus 3 out of reverence for God's Word. And let us read these scriptures together. Follow me as I declare God's Word. Titus 3 verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. So last week was our combined service where several like-minded churches meet together to go through this book of Titus. I was given the charge to open that series a little over a year ago in Titus chapter 1 in the prologue, the introduction and the salutation where Paul declares himself a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And he goes on to exalt the Lord and to give instructions to the church. It occurred to me that the theme of Titus could be summarized by reworking a very common Christian phrase. That common Christian phrase you may have heard goes like this, Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. Are you familiar with that? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's kind of a common phrase that you hear repeated in evangelicalism broadly. Well, I submit to you a slight adjustment to that phrase, which I think doubles as a theme for the book of Titus. And that phrase is this, Christianity is a relationship that begets true religion. Christianity is a relationship with God that evidence itself, that gives rise to, that begets true religion. In the book of James, those words are actually there in the text. True religion is what? It's visiting orphans and widows in need. It's acting in a manner, as Paul says in other places, worthy of, a call, of the call. Walk in a manner worthy of the call. Our religion denotes a particular set of parameters that define what that new lifestyle, what that worldview, what those values are in life in general, very practically, in ordinary decisions, what does the religion, that is to say, of Christianity look like? The Bible, the New Testament, spends a great deal of time giving us instructions accordingly. It is not a religion in the sense that by following these things you are a Christian. But instead, it's religion in the sense that when you are a Christian, there are certain things that evidence that profound change of heart and relationship. Therefore, Christianity is a relationship that begets true religion. Paul has already instructed uh, Titus concerning your average Cretan, that is, those who live in Crete and quasi-Christian false teacher, for that matter, in chapter 1, verse 16. And this is an answer to the question, what of those who don't walk in a manner consistent with Christianity. Well, listen to what Paul says. He says, they, speaking of these 
uh, faithless and lawless hypocrites and so on, they profess to know God. Notice they profess a certain affinity, affiliation. They confess, oh sure, I'm a Christian. I have a relationship with God, they may say. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They deny Him by their works. So the knowledge of God, conversely, is evidenced by their works. Switch this around and Paul is telling the church, profess to know God, but acknowledge that relationship by your works. He goes on to say of these wicked ones, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And Paul would have the church here and the Lord through his scriptures would have us as a church do exactly the opposite. That we would not be detestable, but glory, bringing glory to him. Not disobedient, but faithful and consistent in our walk with him. Not unfit for any good work, but instead fitted for every good work. That we, through the gospel, might evidence in our changing decisions, lives, behaviors, in our relationships, in our demeanor, our attitudes, our actions, our family life, our passions, our desires, our affections, our goals, our hobbies, our ambitions, all of these things. That we might evidence in these the good works that are the fruit of the knowledge of God. And thus, and such is the theme, I would submit to you, of the book of Titus, and it's given to us in summary form in our text today, 3, 1 through 7. In light of these tendencies, that is, a tendency to uh, slip back into patterns of wicked and uh, fleshly thinking, uh, Paul gives Titus instructions, also in light of his pastoral and elder calling. He is equipping him to disciple by exhorting and rebuking with all authority. Chapter 2 Verse 15, Paul encourages Timothy, he said, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So by means of this letter, therefore, in particular, our text today, this passage, Titus is better as a church leader and overseer. He is better prepared to identify and to cultivate the fruit of salvation among the churches of Jesus Christ. And to accomplish this end, Paul models a two-stage approach. And this is a familiar pattern in all of Paul's teaching. I submit to you virtually all of his epistles. First, he proclaims the truths of our great salvation in Jesus Christ, simply stated the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. Secondly, he propels the church to godliness among the believers, or he propels godliness, that is to say, among the believers by calling them to action consistent with their confession. Paul underscores, highlights, reminds, proclaims what is our great salvation in the gospel. And secondly, over and again, he calls the church. He calls us to action consistent with that confession. Our lives as Christians, in the words of the great commentator Matthew Henry, are to be beautified with salvation. Our lives are to be beautified adorned. They are to be decorated. They are to be uh, embellished with salvation. Here's a heading for four points this morning. Affirming all of the gospel in all of life requires, we remember three things and the fourth is an application point. Affirming all the gospel in all of life requires, we remember according to our text today, number one, our personal depravity or wickedness. Affirming the gospel 
requires that we remember that we were once wicked, wretched, sinners. Secondly, it requires we remember divine and sovereign kindness. The goodness and kindness, compassion, the long-suffering of our God extended to us. Thirdly, Trinity wrought redemption. How the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their work have saved us. And finally, we'll close with implications and applications. First of all, affirming all the gospel and all of life requires we remember our personal depravity. Verse 7, just to read again. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now think of this. When Paul uses the language of heir, he reminds us that we are the recipient of the fullness of what the gospel promises. Now an heir, as the Bible also talks about, I think specifically in the book of Galatians, may be he might have legitimate legal standing to receive the estate. But it requires, the Bible says, the death of the testator. So that is, when the parent dies, then the estate is transferred to the recipient, to the child. And so the estate of Jesus Christ's salvation was granted to us when He died. His estate, his, well, we became heirs then of the promise of salvation. Have we received it all just yet? Well, not just yet. We have received it all essentially, but we have not received it all experientially. There are things that yet remain ours that we will experience in full manifest glory in heaven one day and when the Lord brings all of the fullness of the gospel in our experience when there is no more sin, sorrow, dying, or, or any of the flesh to cling to us anymore. So think of this. As Paul calls the church to remember that they are heirs of salvation, he's calling them to remember all of the gospel. Live like heirs. Act like heirs. Not just of what you've received and experienced in part, but what you have received and will experience in fullness as God continues to unveil His plan for history and His plan for you. Therefore, affirming all the gospel in all of life requires we remember a few things. First of all, our personal depravity. Let's hold on verses 1 and 2. We'll close with those. But now let's look at verse 3. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. In, in verse 1, Paul says to Titus, remind them, that is, remind the members of the churches to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's the application point. We'll wait and we'll emphasize that in greater detail at the end of the message. But there's that conjunction, that connecting word. Verse 3, 4, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. So remember your personal depravity. And that will assist you in walking in a manner worthy of your call. You can act like an heir of the gospel, of gospel promises when you do not lose the perspective that you were the chief of sinners, that you were the greatest offender with all of the rest of humanity, falling short of the law of God, falling short of His glory. What is sin? The confessions say usually something like any want of conformity to, any lack of conformity to, or transgression of the law of God. The law of God by Christ's own lips is the standard of righteousness which the holiness of God demands be kept to perfection. 
Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It behooves us to remember how ill-equipped and how we demonstrated in our former life complete failure in this regard. Listen, saints, depravity, that is wickedness, sinfulness, evil, it's easy to recognize in others and it's even easier to justify in ourselves. Notice, this is the kind of default setting. If we let ourselves just slip into coast mode in our Christian life, we will find that it's very easy to point out the wickedness of the world, of others, or society, or culture. Someone we know, we hear a horrible story. We, we uh, hear word of a dysfunctional family situation, a great tragedy, somebody's wickedness that incurred you know, this great horrible circumstance. And it's so easy to judge that rightly as sin. At the same time, the different areas in our life that we struggle with and have struggled with to somehow kind of make excuses, somehow justify ourselves in this regard. There's a quote, I don't know if I can recommend this man outside of this quote, Malcolm Muggeridge, but it's one of my favorite quotes on depravity. He says, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. The depravity of man is at once, at the same time, it's the most empirically verifiable reality, meaning it is so obvious how wicked man is, ourselves and others. But at the same time, we tell ourselves, we delude ourselves, we try to make excuses and justify ourselves. It is the most intellectually, that is, with our false, fallen mind, resisted fact. I'm not so bad. There's others who are far worse. This is the default setting unless we remember the gospel and work against it. Remembering, affirming all of the gospel remember, requires that we remember our personal wickedness. Depravity is easy to recognize in others, even easier to justify in ourselves. I was guilty of this <laughs> this last two weeks. I, I was talking to a subcontractor on the job. And he, I, uh, the, another contractor in the area came up and I said, you know, I haven't seen his signs around. I don't know what they're up to. And he said, well, I heard word that you know, he's really fallen off the wagon in certain areas and maybe even meth was rumored to be involved and that's why his jobs fell apart and things haven't been going so far. And I, I thought to myself, you know, that really is the bottom of the barrel, isn't it? In small town rural America, we hear of these very hardcore, addictive, destructive drugs that ruin people's lives. And in my mind, I thought uh, I was just letting my, you know, sometimes the overactive uh, synapses firing in my mind came up with this idea of the meth index. I wonder how many notches above the meth index I am. You know, if I let my life go in this area, I fall a notch and I just get closer to meth, you know, the bottom of the barrel. And I was kind of thinking about this and in a sort of a cavalier and casual fashion. And then as, as I was studying this passage right here, I realized I was guilty of what Paul was warning, what he was warning the church against. You don't judge yourself by some works or personal discipline index against the wickedness that you otherwise would be slave to and fall into. You judge yourself by the work of Christ alone. Each and every one of us would be as wicked and depraved and as captive and lost and without any you know, apparent hope for change if it wasn't for the gospel. And we owe this entirely to grace. 
Not our experience, not our discipline, not our personality, not our decision-making processes, you know, not the uh, careful path we chose for ourselves, our personal goal-setting, our you know, great uh, intellect and uh, self-goal-setting ability. No. Remind them, Paul says. He says, remind them when we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Think of those first two words, foolish and disobedient. And you'll notice in these categories that Paul uses, he goes on to talk about being led astray, slaves, addictions, hated and hating. I submit to you that all of these are variations of, the, of original sin. In Genesis 3.1, there was the question, did God really say in Genesis 3.5, you will be like God. And as, uh, as mankind represented by Adam and Eve believed that lie, what did they become? They became foolish and disobedient. Imagine the foolishness of denying their creator. They were formed, Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth. God himself breathed life into him. He became a living flesh. He was lonely. Creation wasn't complete so far as man was concerned. God caused him to fall into a deep sleep. He pulled from his rib cage a bone and he formed his beautiful wife from his rib. And around them the land flourished and bloomed with untold bounty of glorious, beautiful plant life and the animals and, the, and the, the variations of God's creativity and just a plethora of amazing uh, uh, creational beauty is, is all around them. And all it took was a, uh, was a word, a deceptive word from one serpent to cause them to put the God behind them and his word that had given them this environment had breathed life into their lifeless clay into the lifeless clay form who had pulled a rib and fashioned Eve and suddenly in their foolishness and disobedience they believed the question did God actually say that you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but again let us not fall into the trap of spotting the depravity of Adam and Eve very clearly, and then justifying ourselves. We in our own sin before Christ are equally foolish and disobedient. We, and we see this around us, we see it in our own hearts, if it were not for the grace of God, are equally petulant and insolent, like a child who won't be happy until he gets his way. It's just the things that we want are a little bit more sophisticated. We're depressed until we get that raise at work or, you know, we refuse to, in, to uh, celebrate anything or to enjoy life until we, we feel like we got at least what we deserved in this expectation or that one. What are we doing? Well, we're just reliving our three-year-old experience by throwing a temper tantrum saying, I won't be happy until X happens. And we keep pushing out by arbitrary measure what we think we deserve to this unreachable goal of Lustful self-indulgence. This is the ignorance of childish rebellion. And notice, all of these things go right back to original sin, foolishness and disobedience. Secondly, Paul reminds us that we were captives. He says, you were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Led, slaves, and addictions. Those three words come to mind. Now, this is an irony because the promise of the serpent was you can be as God. You can achieve this kind of autonomy, which means thinking, deciding, creating, ordaining, predestining for yourself. That was the promise of the serpent in the garden. You can be as God, determining for yourself. 
knowing for yourself good and evil, making your own way, being the captive of your own cap, uh, the captain of your own destiny, and so on. This is the message that is proclaimed in secularism ad nauseum. This is what we hear promised to us in the world. This is what we see as the definition of humanity, dignity, and human rights, and everything else. The right to govern and rule your life as you see fit without any law or authority over you. But what has this, what has this temptation earned and gained for us? It has led us astray. We have become by by, uh, this sin, this original sin, all humanity, slaves, and we then become captives to various passions and pleasures. Led astray, uh, slaves to sin, and addictions that control us. This I submit to you, Paul is saying, is the irony of autonomy's quest. You want to be your own God? Fine. I'll give you what you want. And as your own God in your sin, what will happen? You'll be led astray, captive to the fear of death, slaves to various passions, and in a downward spiral of personal depravity. Don't forget, this is us without Christ. Now, if you turn into the news, tune into the news this last week, you may see millions of people marching in protest of, yeah, exactly, I'm not sure either. You can see millions of people marching, standing for, exactly, I'm not sure either. I heard plenty of interviews, and it was very confusing, self-contradictory and incoherent what people were opposing. It was self-contradictory, foolish and crass and wicked and petulant and debase what they were standing for. I have never seen such depravity on display you know, in full view, at least by that quantity in the public sphere, as much as I have seen recently. And it'd be very easy for me to say, look how wicked they are. The message in act of, of Titus 3 is to, as we see, yes, that great depravity and wickedness celebrated and spread by our culture and mankind around us. Remember, this is the irony of autonomy's quest, and we too would be out there marching with them, not sure what we are opposing, and even less sure what we are standing on, simply led astray, slaves and addicts, to the incoherent, self-serving addiction of man loving himself and denying his creator, refusing to bow to his, to his authority over him, and realize that he is a sinner in dire need of salvation. There is no salvation by making common cause with this civil rights movement over here or this marginalized identity over there. Brothers and sisters, we are trying to save ourselves in this culture. We are trying to do so by making common cause with a marginalized identity, and that becomes the new virtue. Oh, these people are marginalized, so let's you know, uh, build them up and let's, we won't rest until you know, they are equally accepted. And what have we done in so doing? We've normalized sin. We've said that it is okay to live and to identify with whatever you feel at any particular moment. We're inventing genders out of whole cloth. And and it's it's insane. It really is. But this insanity is is nothing that we would not be indulging in and would not know if it wasn't for the grace of God. So Paul's message is, You have a grounding in the gospel. You have sound reasoning. Life makes sense to you. You got the first things right. 
You understand who is a sinner and that you are a sinner. Salvation is in Christ alone. The word of God stands over and above us as our judge. And now with compassion, bring that forward to a culture in desperate need of truth. Even if they spit on your face in so doing. Notice the last two words, hated and hating. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul, in this phrase, speaks of the entire breakdown of all meaningful and life-giving relationships. In our sin, without Christ, there is a complete fallout of the closest and most important of all identities and relationships, our relationship with our Creator blows up. It falls apart in our sin. Our relationship with ourselves, even our identity, who we are, is completely destroyed. I heard a phrase on the radio. I was listening to a commentator this week, and he said, unfortunately, when we forget the great I am, it's not long before we forget we don't know who we are. It's like, we, I can't know who I am without the great I am. What a profound statement. That is exactly true. If you forget God, then who is God? I guess I am. And you begin, and then what about the next? Well, he's God too. And pretty soon, society is in conflict, hated and hating. And this fallout and breakdown of all meaningful relationships is ubiquitous around us. The culture of death ensues. Everyone becomes a participant in their own sort of social suicide. We're spouses, families, children, our Creator and ourselves. We don't even know how to live in a way so that there is harmony or even tolerance. It becomes just a big, uh, confusing mess of malice and envy. Don't forget that this is what the world is and what we are without Christ. We ourselves were once all these things, but we also know that we were transformed by the renewing of our minds when we presented ourselves as a living sacrifice, realizing the gospel in the first place. And so affirming all the gospel in all of life requires we remember these things. Secondly, divine and sovereign kindness. Verse 4, in this uh, glorious change after Paul lays out, obviously and evidently, the wickedness of ourselves and all mankind. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Affirming all the gospel in all of life requires that we remember divine and sovereign kindness. This divine and sovereign kindness is evident first in that God our Savior has appeared. How did God our Savior appear to us? How did His goodness and loving kindness enter into the state of fallenness, wickedness, depravity, and horrific circumstance we, just, uh, we were just uh, recognizing in the text to turn things around? Well, I submit to you that there are multiple references here in mind, but look back in the text at 2.11. We see a parallel reference. For, by, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. 
Now, I'll bring in another reference too, a cross-reference to Hebrews chapter 1, because I believe this concept of appearing, Christ appearing, God our Savior appearing, is associated also with the introduction to the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, verse 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is the author of Hebrews referring to here? He's referring to Christ's appearing. The appearing, the appearing that is, of the goodness and loving kindness of our God in our Savior, Jesus Christ, when He became incarnate. Christ was incarnate to do many things. Specifically, in His work of redemption, He kept the law perfectly. Thus, His perfect law-keeping can justify us when it is imputed, when it's credited to our account. For this reason, though we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray, we are now righteous, not because of ourselves, but because God in His goodness and loving kindness and in His Savior Christ appeared in history to keep the law as the second Adam to satisfy the demands where Adam and all who are in Adam fell short. Secondly, in Christ's appearing, we have the clearest proclamation of substitutionary atonement in history thus far. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament spoke of it in type and shadow. The prophets of old spoke of the gospel in more veiled form. But Hebrews testifies, as does Paul and Titus, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared to us in Christ, the message of the kingdom and salvation in His blood alone flooded into the consciousness of the redeemed heart with an overwhelming sense of that is what salvation means. And Christ is the one prefigured and prophesied of old. And now He has arrived in history. And because of His law-keeping and His sacrificial death, I have salvation. This is a sovereign act of God. When He became man, it was a plan before creation began that He would invade history and take on flesh. The members of the Trinity in covenant with one another acted in concert and unity to bring us salvation. This happened at the fullness of time according to God's perfect plan. This is a divine act. It was sovereign. It was by His hand. This, Christ appearing, is what we owe our salvation and nothing else. Not our own works. What separates us from the foolish, disobedient, those led astray, slaves of various passions, pleasures, malice, and be hated and hating? What separates us from those anymore? It is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior when He appeared and saved us. Not because of works, verse 3, done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. I heard just a, a, a really a neat detail recently about that emphasized, kind of illustrated in biblical language how we bring nothing to this relationship with Christ. And in the law, Exodus 21, 7 through 10, there's, uh, there's uh, uh, some of the details and the specifics of the covenant relationship of a bride to her husband is laid out. Also in Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, 
there's another relationship of concubine, I believe, in that instance, to husband is laid out. Also, so in, in the Old Testament, it's interesting, there are provisions made in the law for wives, for secondary wives, that is to say concubines. And what is the difference between the two? Well, this individual is saying in his lecture, he said the main difference between the two is a concubine came with no dowry. What is dowry? That's the bride price. A bride comes with an investment in the marriage relationship, wealth-wise or monetarily speaking. That was the normative circumstance. A bride would come with a, uh, with a dowry, with a, with a bride price. Well, negotiations could also be made for a woman to be provided for and receive protection even if she had no dowry, but it was in the category of a secondary wife, of a concubine. There was one third category, and this is a wife taken in war. She, though had nothing to bring to the relationship, she had to be given both the rights and the privileges. And so the point being that we, the church of Jesus Christ, are his bride. The language in the New Testament, Galatians, lays this out, talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New. One of the glorious realities of the New Covenant is that marriage pictures, it's a picture of our relationship with Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are the bride that comes to this marriage with Jesus, so to speak, with no dowry. We have no wealth, nothing to offer, no bride price. We come only with our sin that He needs to wash away, and He does. But what does He give us? He gives us His inheritance, though we have nothing to contribute. We are heirs with Him. We are the bride that receives an inheritance, even though we were worse than a concubine. We were a pagan conquered in war. Christ has defeated our enemies. He has adopted us. We are adopted to the Father. We are in union with Him, and He gives us the full inheritance, the privileges of the gospel. Affirming all the gospel and all the life requires we remember these things. We can act like heirs when we remember that an heir is not an heir because of what he has done. But especially in our case, an heir is an heir because of what Christ has done. Thirdly, this morning, affirming all the gospel and all of life requires not only that we remember our personal depravity, not only Christ's divine, the Lord, the Godhead, His divine and sovereign kindness, but kindness, but thirdly, Trinity-wrought redemption. That means it is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that is responsible for the work of redemption. Trinity-wrought redemption. Notice again in our text, verses 5-7. through seven, It says, He saved us. Speaking of who, I submit to you, the Father, God the Father. God the Father saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Now notice how this happens. We are going to move from the Father to the Spirit. By, he says, the washing of regeneration and renewal of who? The Holy Spirit. Six, Verse 6, thirdly, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There we have the Trinity. You might wonder, where is the Trinity affirmed in Scripture? Well, I submit it's affirmed in all of Scripture, but here is one of those specific and particular instances. Again, He has saved us, God the Father, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. We find in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, Paul affirms, he reverses this notion 
when he says, but on uh, some points I have, see if this is the correct text, um, sorry, Romans 9, verses 14 and 15. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Listen, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is exactly what Paul is instructing Titus for the church to remember so that they can act like heirs and affirm all the gospel in all of life. He says, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It is the Trinity wrought redemption. First of all, the fact that the Father had mercy upon us. Not works done, not merit earned on our behalf, but exclusively and only His mercy extended to us is the ground of our salvation. Notice the power of that pronoun, He. He saved us. Who saved us? God the Father. This is His plan, His purpose. This is His act. This is His dynamic action in history through the whole scope of redemption that he purposed in extending mercy to his own to save us not because of righteousness our righteousness but because of his election this is the decree and the plan of god that we see in this truth of trinity wrought redemption it does not stop there however we have in the next phrase the operative element it's the process by which we are saved, by, that is to say, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God the Father has saved us and He has done it by this sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given each of you, if you are born again in this place, new life. That's what regeneration means. It means new creation. It is to say, born again. This is described as a washing. Why this term washing and renewal? Well, there's several things in view. If we go back in Hebrews 9 and study what was pictured in the Old Covenant and then fulfilled in the New, the Scriptures say thereby that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. There was in the picture of the law a washing that took place where blood had to be sprinkled on all the implements of worship before they had any a representative effect in tabernacle worship. So the blood was shed upon the mercy seat and that may renewed the relationship as it were between a man, a man who is deserving of bloodshed and a holy God. So in this picture, shed for the remission of sins, we have this idea of washing and regeneration. Christ's blood is often spoken of as that washing agent, that cleansing agent that washes us white as snow. There is a cleansing, there is a renewal, there is a newness of life. There is, as it were, a brand new state of affairs in our salvation that is pictured here. This is a renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice here that Holy Spirit, this capitalized pronoun in your scriptures, is the second person, is the third person, that, that is to say, of the, of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit God in the person of the Holy Spirit is active and evident in your life, changing and renewing you. 
He has done so effectively and conclusively in justification when you were renewed and born again and that washing and regeneration continues to be evident in sanctification moving forward. Walking in a manner worthy of our call or acting like heirs or affirming all of the gospel and all of life is evidence of this newness of life taking place. Trinity wrought redemption, Father, Spirit, and thirdly, we have Son in verse 6. Whom, that is speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a whom, not an it or a thing or a force, but the Spirit as God, the, uh, the third person of the Trinity, is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And there we have Christ in this Trinity wrought redemption as the agent, as it were, or that which made this transaction, this work of the Holy Spirit, possible. The Holy Spirit and His transformative work in your heart can be richly experienced in you because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, this reality is ours not just a little bit, not just, uh, just enough or in sparse quantity, but instead richly, reminding us of the inheritance that we have as heirs, that you might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, is a rich experience. There is an overwhelming, incalculable supply of the riches of salvation credited to our account by the Holy Spirit through Christ. And through Him, the riches of the gospel are poured out in the life of the believer and they experience them in regeneration and all the promises that will one day be manifest of this great transaction, this great work of salvation done in our hearts. We must remember this. We must remember the sovereignty of God. We must remember that this is by Him alone. Notice in the text here, just by way of note, in contradistinction to other religious ideas, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now in other places in the Scripture, it says that we are justified by faith. Here it says we are justified by grace. Take them both together and remember this, that faith is not a work of your own. Faith is a work of grace alone. The Bible speaks of these two things interchangeably because why? None of our works contribute to this. Faith is a gift of God lest we would be able to boast of it. Ephesians 2 says as much. This is extremely important. This year marks the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation. If you mark it by the nailing of the 95 Theses to the castle door by one Martin Luther, what was he opposing? He was opposing an entirely religious system that was dominating the majority of people's hearts and minds at the time who told them that their actions can contribute to their salvation. Jesus died, in effect, to make you savable. And by maintaining His grace of justification, by doing good works, and if you fall short in losing the grace of justification, you can do certain things to regain it, retain it through uh, penance and uh, the seven different sacraments and all of this. What am I describing? I'm describing an aberrant religious system that is anti-Christ and anti-gospel. That is what Roman Catholicism is. It's extremely important to look to the Bible to draw distinctions of what is true and what is false. 
We are justified by faith. This faith is a justification, you could also say, by His grace, because it is nothing of us and all of Him. We have no merit to bring to Him. We are the bride with no dowry. The inheritance that, receive, that we receive, we do not contribute to. It is only ours because Christ has given it to us in His pure grace. And this is, evident, this is evidence of God the Father's pure mercy. And it is a sovereign work by God the Holy Spirit's indwelling and sovereignly changing the constituent nature of our being such that we are a new creation brought forth from the death of sin into newness of life in Christ. This is the power of the gospel. This is Trinity-wrought redemption. I draw these distinctions from false understandings, not to give you sort of firepower to build up yourself, but to remember that there is only one way of salvation. And there cannot be, and God will not indulge any counterfeits or anything that sells His glory short. Remember, we in our personal depravity would be equally led astray by these kinds of ways of thinking. But set your mind and meditations upon not just who you were before Christ, but divine and sovereign kindness and trinity-wrought redemption so that you can reach out with compassion and draw those who may need the gospel that are caught in false systems, this world system, or different religious systems like Roman Catholicism, and show them the beauty of salvation. That is what I pray the Word does for us. This was needful in Crete at the time. There was all kinds of heresy that was spoken of in this church. Uh, Paul was warning them against it. He left elders in Crete to fight against it. He says, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, that he, meaning any elder capable and qualified to lead the church, may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Because they, if they're allowed to flourish or to draw others astray will lead them away from Christ, the beauty of salvation. Affirming all the gospel and all of life requires we remember these things. Let us close, close in application. Turning back to 3 verses 1 and 2. Now in light of all this, remembering all of this that we've just gone over, what is the instruction? How are we to act as heirs? Paul says, remind them to be, so remind all the members of the churches, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is how we act like heirs. We act like heirs of the kingdom of God when we interact with rulers and authorities as if they do not own this world, and as if they have a calling to affirm the Lord in their just rule or in their actions, and we act in a way that they need the gospel too. We submit to them not because they demand it, but because Christ demands it. And as we act like heirs in interacting with the world, we don't need to cower in fear or blind reactionary rebellion and, uh, you know, a revolution against the tyrants of our day. But we can stand before them boldly, declaring the word of God as Paul has done. He has exemplified this. Acts 24 and Acts 26, we can't go through those texts today, but if you have a copy of the notes, I've marked down two occasions where Paul modeled this kind of application very well 
He did so in standing before the likes of Felix, Agrippa, Caesar, and so on. Acts 24, 10 through 21. Acts 26, 1 through 29. Paul was not intimidated as he stood before those rulers. He was a fulfillment of the promise, by the way, in the book of Matthew, Luke, and Acts, or, and, and uh, the other Gospels where it says, don't even worry about what you're going to say in advance. I will give you a word and wisdom your adversaries cannot comprehend when you are drugged before kings and courts for my sake. So Paul was able to stand before the authorities and not be intimidated, to, but to draw instead their attention to the King of kings and Lord of lords over them and to wish that they, O King Agrippa, would be just like me, except for these chains. Kind of makes me laugh. He wanted him to know the gospel. You see, in our society, I referenced before these sort of marches and stuff that go on. We separate ourselves by identity groups. We see ourselves as invariably clashing as different segments of society. Oh, the underlings and the, and, and the, uh, you know, the little guy who pays taxes is invariably at odds with the rulers and authorities that demand it. No, there is a, a way that these two can be unified. They can be unified in Christ. And so we speak to this with purpose and with boldness, with faith and with authority. When we remember that we were once depraved, that divine and sovereign kindness has saved us and that this redemption is a trinity wrought work, it prepares us to act like heirs, even in interacting with rulers and, and authorities, to be submissive to them, not blindly rebellious, but instead proclaiming the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ and salvation that even they might be saved and submit to his authoritative, submiss, uh, uh, sufficient and holy word. We are to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. It strikes me as Paul gives these applications and implications of what he has just said, what he goes on to qualify, that he's giving us the correct way to act like heirs to superiors, those who are over us, to peers, those we share life with, and to subjects, those who are under us, say children or employees, or even at this time, what would be something like an indentured slave or servant. Rulers, authorities, all people, heirs of the kingdom of God, are not to forget that their relationships are meaningfully changed and transformed, no matter who they're talking to, because of the work of Christ. So act like heirs when interacting with those who are over you, those who stand beside you, and those who are subject to you. Remember that there is grace realized in Christ, that the overflow of the Christian's, Christian life as he lives in light of his personal depravity, now washed away in the blood of Christ, divine and sovereign kindness, and trinity-wrought redemption, that the grace of Christ becomes actualized, if you will, becomes uh, evident as we act like heirs. We wear, that is to say, salvation and the gospel on our sleeve when we act in a way that shows that our confidence is in Christ, that we owe our transformation to Him, that His mercy and grace alone has saved us. This qualifies us to be ready for every good work. As we think about this today, I would encourage you to make applications in your own life. How can you remember your own personal wickedness, the fact that God has saved you sovereignly, and that it was a work by, God, by the Trinity alone that saved you, as you disciple your children this week, will you rail against them, hoping that they will conform to your behavioral demands by reacting without patiently instructing them? 
Well, I'll tell you, I'm often guilty of this, but one thing that will, re- that is, that will remind us to do differently is to remember that without Christ changing our heart and life and behavior, we are the same petulant three-year-old as maybe your child is showing in his latest tantrum. That's just a practical way to act like an heir in your home. Oh, the next time, and I often watch politics a little too closely and get swept up in the sort of repartee of ideas and, you know, the ideological a pinball machine that sometimes is represented by those who rule over us. And oftentimes in my mind, I don't see myself as a joint heir of Christ in dealing with those things, but I find myself as, you know, a, a, a suffering little guy who really has no control over what's going on. Well, that's not exactly acting like an heir. I can suffer a lot. I can suffer a lot of tyranny when I remember that when I die, I'm seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning over every authority that tried to rear its ugly head against the King of Kings eternal. I'm the one who knows personally, the one who laughs in the heavens in derision, according to Psalm 2, when those Try to th- who try to throw off the chains of God's law, act in rebellion in history, wow, it changes your perspective. This gives you a certain confidence and can also help you to pray for those who are in authority. And not see yourself so angry that you can't wait until the next election while you demonstrate that angst in voting them out and running them out of town, out of Washington on a rail. But in the midst of all of the angst that surrounds us in the news, we can... Remember to pray and to plead that those who are in authority in one sense will suffer greater judgment because they were responsible for more and that that thought would drive them to the fear of the Lord, repentance for their sin and tyranny and subject themselves, their actions to the Lord and his word. That They too might be submissive to the rule and authority over them and then as a minister of God's justice begin to be ready for every good work. There's many other examples I could give you, but I encourage you to apply them yourself. How can we take the message of today's word from the Apostle Paul to act like heirs to those who need a testimony, who lack a testimony of godliness in this wicked world? I remind you to glorify God in this way and take to heart what you have heard from the scriptures. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for equipping us and enabling us to be your ambassadors in a dark world through your sufficient scripture. Lord, we repent for the many ways we fall short of the commands and vision that Paul has laid out for the churches today. We ask that you would point out in our lives areas that need to be conformed to the gospel so we can affirm all of who you are in all of our lives. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be more consistent with the reality that we are the blood bought by your mercy alone, saved and adopted sons and daughters of Almighty God who share co-regency, that is rule and reign with you, over everyone and every power and authority. As we remember this, Lord, help us to to, uh, be part of your message of condescension, as it were, to bring the high truths of your holiness to the world by the Great Commission, going and making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey whatsoever you have commanded, and instructing them in the whole counsel of God. Help us in simple and practical and basic ways this week to live out the truths that we find in your scriptures, that we might glorify and praise you, that we might act, Lord, in, act consistently with what you have done to save us, that we may bear the fruits of salvation. 
In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.